The rest of you can turn to the book of Job, right before the book of Psalms. So if you get to the book of Psalms in the middle of the Bible, hang a left. And while it is a beautiful spring day outside right now, I'd like to begin with a poem simply called Winter. It says this, The long dark season of everything, stripped to nothing, began so sudden, overnight, with a gust of one phone call, then never left. The only miracle here is waiting to see how much night a day can hold and still be called a day. It's written by a guy named Mark Buchanan. I begin this morning just saying this, that if you're suffering here today, if you're in pain and heartbreak today, I just want you to know I'm sorry for that. And I ache with you and I ache for you. Um, I know that many times, you know me, I like to laugh. I like to get into God's word um, and, and keep things light sometimes, but heavy sometimes. This is going to be a heavier Sunday. We're in the book of Job, for Pete's sake. So, of course, it's going to be a little bit heavier. But I just want to say, for those of you who've walked in here with a heavy heart, I do pray that you'll see today as a gift of grace. I pray that you won't hear condemnation or cold theology or reheated sayings and platitudes that do no good. I pray also that you'll come to realize that God has you here this morning in church on purpose, even with a heavy heart, even with the pain and suffering that might be going on. When you think of tragedy and calamity and disaster, terror and shock, this is for sure what sells newspapers. It's for sure what grabs headlines and keeps you there on a channel. It's really what's in our news all the time. It's on our phones and on our iPads and such. You think about Virginia Tech and Columbine and 9-11 and Sandy and Katrina and Loma Prieta and Boston Marathons. Those are just some of the shocking kinds of things that have, that have rocked our screens and newspapers over the last decade or so. They bring pain and they bring suffering and they bring questions. But more than just scouring the news and looking for this and thinking that it's out there somewhere, these kinds of things are a whole lot closer to home than that. You don't need to turn on the TV to find this. Relationships experience superstorms. Expectations are sometimes gunned down seemingly by a terrorist in your life that comes in and shatters expectations. Careers and schools have their own kinds of hurricanes. Pain, suffering, and questions. If you've been along long enough, if you've been alive long enough, you just know this is part of the human experience, is to go through these things. Our book this morning, Job, chapter 5, verse 7, says it this way. Job's complaining at this point, and he says, Man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. You ever been around a campfire? You just watch those little sparks, right, shooting up in the heat. Man, next time we do that, our next uh, church campouts in Labor Day, we'll just sit around. Someone ought to just pipe up. Man, man's born to trouble as sparks fly upward. As surely as those sparks are going to go shooting up every time you see a fire, man, that's what, that's what men are born to, is to trouble and, and these kinds of things. So the question is, where do you turn in these times? Where do you turn when there's pain and there's suffering and there's questions going on? Through the centuries, people have turned to the book of Job for comfort. And maybe you could get to know someone by just saying, hey, let me take a quick look at your Bible. And maybe if you saw some well-worn pages in the book of Job, you might have a little picture, a little heart, a little understanding of maybe where their life has taken them. 
Through the centuries, Christian or not, people have turned to the book of Job for comfort. I know that I have turned there before, no joke, to read the book of Job to know that there's someone off, uh, way, way worse off than I was in the moment. And there was a, a certain kind of comfort in that. Job is a book where he is in so much despair that the, the day of his birth, his birthday, seems like a cruel joke. Listen to Job 3.11. Why did I not die at birth, come out of the womb, and expire? I think it shows something of the heart of God that, that right here in the very middle of our Bibles is a book that skeptics and cynics would seem to identify as it raises a lot of the questions that come to us as we experience life limited in time and space the way that we are. Theologians call some of what we're going to talk about this morning the problem of evil. The problem of evil. Uh, understate much? You know, I mean, <laughs> uh, here, here's essentially what the problem of evil um, tries to, to, to get at. And you've probably voiced this in some way. You've probably asked this or wrestled with this in some way. If God is all good and all powerful, why does he allow blank? And then you would fill the blank in with that. And depending on who you are, the kind of life you've lived, uh, the things you're currently wrestling with, you'll wonder that at some point, right? Nod your head with me a little bit so I know that you've checked this one out, okay? All right, not alone in that. Another way of saying it might be this. If he's ever-present... Why, God, why did you not stop blank from happening? A problem indeed. The problem of evil is what theologians call it. Most of us just scratch our heads and invent these questions and ask these questions sometimes. Job is an ancient man whose story and conversations raise many questions, but here's what the book of Job does not provide. It doesn't provide those airtight answers that you and I long for. We crave for just kind of this, this sentence with a period on it that would just close the matter. But it does give voice to a lot of the things that we wonder about. It's a whole book about pain and suffering. But maybe as you look deeper, maybe as you wrestle with the book a little bit more, maybe you would see beyond just the pain and suffering that the book talks about, which it does have a lot of of it in there. I think that's an untrue statement. I think it's really a book about faith. I think underneath everything that's going on with Job, faith is what is there. See if you agree. Let me give you Job in about three minutes. It's 42 chapters, so it's going to be a bit of a challenge, but hang with me. Most of the book, if you were to take chapters 3 through 37. Okay, that's a big chunk of the book. Most of the book is about pain and suffering and questions. That's what it is. It's a conversation. The language is poetic and moving. It's raw and it's vivid. And it's an incredible read. But the author, if, if there were, if, if, if this were a play, here's how, here's how it might set up. It's almost as if We're the crowd and we arrive early and the author of the play comes out and he says this, let me tell you in the first two chapters what's really going on. The actors on stage don't know what's going on, but let me let you in, audience, on what's going on. And in the first two chapters is really all the action of the book. And then he gets right into the dialogue of the book. And in those first two chapters, we see the context provided for everything else that we read in the book. 
So we, the reader, have this distinct and unique perspective of being able to see what's really going on while the actors on the stage, while the people living these things out, aren't privy to that. And that's how the book sets up. It closes with God finally weighing in on the matter that Job is bringing up, and he brings it up to Job. And chapters 38 through 42 are basically questions for Job. And God begins to to question him. In fact, Job 47, he says this, Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Job's been just rapid-firing question after question after question to God. Cursing the day of his birth. Wondering why. I mean, Job's in an impossible situation, is he not? We know that he's blameless and upright. We're going to read about that in a moment. And yet all this calamity is is coming in on him. His, His whole world has caved in on him. So we feel for Job. We, we wrestle with Job in that. I was at the zoo recently, and to, to read 38 through 42, I mean, God starts with, with, with mysteries of creation, and then he just begins to, you know, imagine walking through the zoo and just getting schooled on every animal. You know, I mean, I've got the placard in front of me, and I still don't know much about their range and where they eat. God's just going, tell me this, tell me that. You know so much, tell me this, tell me that. As I read it, to be honest, there's, there's, a, there's a cold comfort in that. It's like, ouch. That's, that's not exactly ooey-gooey, come and let's cry it out together. But here's God just posing questions back to Job, demanding an answer. Reminds me a little bit of his son, like father, like son. Remember Jesus, how he'd so often answer someone's question with what? A question, right? I mean, maybe he gets it from his father. Because here's Job just firing off questions, and God's like, one, two, three, four. Okay, we got 400 questions. I'm going to fire back some questions for you. And the way he answers Job's questions is with questions. We see that in Jesus, and, and we see it and trust it by faith to have, to have loving results. In chapter 42, Job finally confesses his lack of understanding. Job's heart has turned at this point, and he repents. He's sorry for coming after God in the way that he does. And his relationship grows deeper. Just jot this down because this is worth investigating later. Job 42, verse 5. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Job was a person like many people that I had met and, and had been for a season of my life where you hear about God, you hear about grace, you hear about His awesome power, you hear about His sovereignty, and then you experience God. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. His relationship grows deeper, no doubt, through this experience. And in 42.12, we see that God delivers Job. He justifies Job in front of his friends, which we'll take a look at in a second, and he restores Job. Job 42.12 says this, The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. We're in a series that we're calling Step of Yes. And the big idea here is this, that, that life is about God initiating with us and us responding back to God. And we've already seen in a few of the characters of the Old Testament that we've looked at that some receive invitation and follow wholeheartedly. Some receive the invitation and run the other way. Jonah, be a missionary. 
and he bolts the opposite way to get as far away from Nineveh as he possibly can. And some, like last week Ben brought up, you know, Solomon, who is kind of a mixed bag. Most of our life is us seeing dimly. It's us kind of squinting in the dark, wondering and thinking and saying, God, what are you up to? I know that today has enough trouble for its own, so I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but what are you up to? God, this just happened. That's out of my control. That just happened. That's out of my control. What is going to happen? And this book, again, is just one of those very rare times where we get to see very clearly, here's what God is up to. Now watch it unfold. And I tell you what, it unfolds unlike how I would write a book or a story to make God look good and to make, my, and to, and to make the whole thing fit and look wise. But that's how it's laid out. If there was a prequel to, to Job, um, it, it could be implied that the following existed. We see that he worships God, he is declared righteous by God, he's blessed by God, he's protected by God and made prosperous by God. It's as if God proposed, invited, and he said what? Yes. We can presume that he already said yes to God's invitation because he's in relationship with God at the very start of the book. But what happens next is a different kind of invitation. You ever not want to be invited to something? You ever wish you could be uninvited to something? Man, I wish they didn't send me an invitation because now I've got to kind of, you know, tell them no and it's going to be awkward or whatever else. This is one of those invitations um, that I don't think anyone signs up for or says, I really, really want this. But he's invited into deeper relationship. He's invited into the deep, as it were. But suffering, as I said earlier, I believe is just an ingredient in the story. It's, it's just part of the book. Our youth went last night to the beach and, um, and uh, on the way home stopped at Marianne's Ice Cream. Some of you know Marianne's. It's on Ocean uh, Street there. And um, to, to say that the book of Job is about suffering is a little bit like saying Marianne's is about cream or, or is about stirring or is about sugar. Th- those are ingredients. But what's Marianne's really about? It's about ice cream, right? That's why you go there. Or malts if you're me. But it's about, it's about that finished product and not necessarily the, the individual ingredients of it. So the book of Job. The book of Job really is, is about something different, although we think of it. I immediately think of suffering and pain and, and the, the wrestling back and forth with sort of the problem of evil when I think about the book of Job. What's really going on is a test. God is inviting Job, I put, to suffer. <clears throat> And because we're going to cover a lot of suffering in, in terms of talking about it. But really, as I thought about it more, it's this. It's an invitation to trust. Suffering is a mechanism. Suffering is an ingredient. But to not get hung up on the ingredient, it's really God inviting Job to trust. Is it not? We're going to read it. And, and again, you, you get to weigh in and, and, and see what you think. But it's God saying, trust me. Through the suffering, just as you have trusted me through all this blessing, through all this protection, through all this abundance that's gone on with you. Tsunamis and drunk drivers and cancer and a thousand other things that are rolling through your mind right now show that all people everywhere suffer in this life. The central point raised in Job is this. 
when you are invited to suffer, suffer with God. Everyone's going to suffer. Suffer with God. All right. If you're in Job, turn to chapter 1, and we're just going to read the first five verses. Again, the author doesn't mince words. He jumps right into it with, with a couple of chapters that kind of sets things up. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed, he, he possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each other, of, of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters and eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So I want to take just a moment and look at this man, Job. Job was no ordinary man. In fact, Job was no ordinary good man. Job was, Job was an exceptional man in character and in conduct. You may have met that rare breed a handful of times in this life where you say, wow, that's an exceptional man. That's an exceptional woman. That's who Job was. Two words are used in the ESV, blameless and upright. And if you look at the words uh, in the Hebrew, here, here's, here's what they're talking about. Blameless is complete, spiritually mature. Upright means straight. You think of the opposite of that is crooked. Someone who's crooked, you, you don't want to do business with. Someone who's straight and, and walks accordingly, you want to do business with. What it's... What it's saying of him is that he's complete, he's spiritually mature, he's straight. This is reiterated by God himself in verse 8, as he has this conversation with Satan. Now, Job was not sinless. I read blameless, and my modern English mind says, well, he must be, he must be without sin. That's not what it's saying. Just jot this down, you can look at it later, but Job 14 Verses 16 to 17 are just one instance. There's a couple in the book um, that, that, that he, he's acknowledging his own iniquity, his own sin. So it's not that the Bible's going back on its word and say, well, we found another sinless person. There was one sinless person to walk this earth, and that was Jesus Christ. Job is a sinner in need of grace like every person who, who's been born of Adam and Eve. What you see about Job, though, in just the first few verses that sets up who he is, is that Job does what a worshiper of God does with their sin. They deal with it appropriately. Perhaps even more powerfully, and a little side note here is this, you see Job as the family priest. He's acting as the family priest. Job, the father, Job, the dad, is doing what for his kids? He's watching over them, is he not? He's rising early. He's deeply concerned about their spiritual well-being. He's actually making sacrifices and, and praying covering over them, lest, lest they don't even know to pray over them, or they've committed sins that they don't even know about. Here's a dad who's engaged. 
These are dads that are that are harder and harder to find. These are dads that us as men, part of man camp, is just us linking arms and saying, these are the kinds of men we want to be. If you don't have kids yet, it's linking arms with those who have gone down the road ahead of you and said, that's the man I long to be. I don't want to be a little boy who's grown up and wearing big boy underwear and can shave. I want to be a man. And for those who've walked further down the road than me, I want to learn from you. From those who have kids who've gone up and out of your house, we need to hear from you. We need to be the family priest. And Job, just just in a few verses, you just see the kind of exceptional uh, conduct and character that he had, that he was concerned for the spiritual welfare of his children. And then I'm not going to read it. I, I just I encourage you to read at least the first two chapters. Um, I'd encourage the whole book. It's God's word, right? But but three through thirty-seven, I get it. It can get a little long. In the first two chapters, you'll you'll read about this. But calamity strikes, and Job is struggling. That's another understatement. He's struggling with God. He's struggling with his wife. He's struggling with his friends. He's even battling self-doubt in himself. You ever been there? Struggling, wrestling with all those things I just mentioned? Not to mention his 401k, right? I mean, his, uh, his finances uh, get, get turned upside down a little bit here, too. I just want to pull out, I'm trying to cover 42 chapters this morning. So uh, I'm just going to pull out a couple of, of nuggets that, to me, show some defining moments in this guy, Job. Isn't it true that when we're tested, our character leaks out? What's really inside of us leaks out when we start getting, getting hammered on. Job's getting hammered on. Uh, in Job 1.22, or 1.20, just look at it. Then Job arose. This is after all these things uh, went wrong all at once. Then Job arose tore, and tore his robe and shaved his head, external signs of extreme sorrow, and fell on the ground and worshipped. Verse 21, and he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Flip, open to, uh, flip over to, to Job 13. In Job 13, Things have gotten so desperate. He begins to curse the day of his birth. And I just read a short snippet, but he goes on and on. He's pouring out his heart, his everything to God. And it's just getting bad to worse. Not only his stuff, but now his body. I'm a huge poison oak person. Not that I'm a fan of it. I get it. Um, And when I read about Job taking pottery and scraping the boils off of his skin... Uh, my son and I were reading this earlier this week, and it says that that um, you know that it was that it was dry and and crackly, and then it turned soft and and, and boily again. And I'm like, oh, that's poison oak. I mean, I, I get that. I mean, give me some pottery. You know, I want to go to pottery barn and just gross everyone out. I just need to scrape myself. I get that. So not only now is all his stuff messed with and all the people in his life, but now his own body is in torment. And in Job 13 verse 15, look at this. It says, though he slay me, he's talking about God. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet, I will argue my ways to his face. And in that one line, 
is, is a lot of Job's response. I'm going to cling to God, but man, I'm going to argue my case to his face. That's, in a nutshell, minus his friends that come and talk, 3 through 37. That's what he does. He does those things. Us as the reader, again, I hope you don't know this story so well that you skim by chapters 1 and 2 or else you miss the whole point of it, but us as the reader is pulling for Job to hold on, right? Because we know what this is about. Simple, childlike faith is on display with Job, but it's anything but simplistic. Sometimes we do a, a disservice if we, if we just say, it's just saying a simple prayer. Isn't life a whole lot more complex than a simple prayer? Yes, it is, but there's this paradox that goes on. It's simple, childlike faith, but it's not simplistic. It's not that Job just plugged his ears and, and sang, you know, Jesus loves me over and over, or quoted Sunday school things. He's wrestling with God. He's pleading his case to his face. He's saying, though he, my Savior, slay me, I'm going to hope in him. That's anything but simplistic. Consider the alternatives that you or I may have employed in this. Maybe running from God. Maybe being very quick to blame God. Maybe simply ignoring God. Ignoring God is this. I've got this. I can handle this. No thanks to you. I'm in this situation. So I'm going to get myself out of it. Those are just three that came to my mind. In Job, we see what it is to suffer with God instead of all those other ways to go about it. In the book of James, half-brother of Jesus, you can just jot this down and look it up later, but James 5.10, Job is a man who's commended and actually told to be mimicked, to, to be modeled after. It says this, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord. So was Job a saint? Well, we know he was blameless and upright, and that was said by God himself. But let me tell you a little bit. Let me just give you a little, if if I gave you some highlights, some defining moments about what happened when he was tested Um, Here are some of the statements from this steadfast and patient, blameless and upright man. You don't need to write all these down, but I'm just going to skim through them. Job 7.19. Will you never look away from me or let me alone even for an instant? He's talking to God. Job 10.20. Are not my few days almost over? Turn away from me so I can have a moment's joy. Chapter 14, verse 18. But as a mountain erodes and crumbles, and as a rock is moved from its place, as water wears away stone and torrents wash away the soil, so you destroy man's hope. Job 30, verse 20. I cry out to you, O God, but you do not answer. I stand up, but you merely look at me. You turn on me ruthlessly. With the might of your hand, you attack me. Yet when I hoped for good, evil came. When I looked for light, then came darkness. The churning inside me never stops. Days of suffering confront me. Right here in the middle of the Bible is a man who's blameless and upright. 
And, and what I get the sense is this. He's giving voice to things that we don't even know. Is it okay to say this about God? Is it okay to really get really honest with God? And to me, it seems like this, this blameless man comes right up to the edge of blasphemy. But apparently, he doesn't quite step across the line. You attack me. Will you leave me alone so I can have some joy? I would venture to guess some of you are there right now in this building. I pray you see this as God's gift of grace to you to say, I can handle it. Come engage with me. Don't run from me. The opposite of engaging is indifference. Would that you would be hot or cold, but if you're lukewarm, just kind of blasé going through life, there's no relationship there. Perhaps the worst kind of torture in a marriage is indifference towards the other person. The ancient mind would never do what us moderns have no problems doing, and that is this, taking God and putting him on trial. Taking God and putting him on trial. They thought it arrogant to test God and see if God measured up to their scrutiny. They thought it arrogant to see if he would pass the test. Pretty good logic, actually. But I think we have an easier time doing that, taking God and putting him on the witness stand and see if he stands up to our scrutiny. I think suffering brings this out in us. When times are good, we think God is good. When times get sour, we all of a sudden call God to task. Where are you, God? Are you sour too, since my situation is pretty bad? It seems this unwanted invitation of suffering also has a way of kind of bringing another unwanted thing, and that is unwanted advice. Maybe you've been there. Those people who are in the hospital um, often report that, that people coming trying to cheer them up or help them in some way often end up feeling worse when people come and visit. You don't need to raise your hand or point, but maybe you've been in that situation. You've been down in the dumps. You've been injured. Something terrible has gone on with you. And those closest to you, those who love you, those who sincerely are trying to help, come and actually make matters worse. person who's depressed doesn't need a pep talk. person who's had a calamity come doesn't necessarily just need an embroidered thing that says God will work all things together for good and say, I'm just going to hang this at the foot of your bed because you're forgetting something. Those kinds of things feel like blows, right? Thanks for visiting. Please leave. As a pastor who visits people in the hospital, let me apologize in advance. I'm sure I'm going to do it to you. I don't mean to. I sincerely pray for wisdom. Every time I walk into a hospital room, I'm a talker. So a lot of times I say, God, just shut my mouth. Let me just sit with this person. Let me be with this person. They don't need a sermon right now. They don't need my, my brilliant deductions of you know, what's going to help them. They may not even need a Bible verse. But I've probably done it to you and will probably do it again. His wife. His partner for life. Look at chapter 2, verse 9. Curse God and die. Thanks, dear. <laughs> what a catch, huh? 
No, that's not what he says. Look at verse 10. He says, but he said to her, Job answers her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Look at your, your picture for a moment on the cover of your, of your bulletin. Tegan's picture captures this perfectly. Here's Job with dead children laying around him. The family that he does have left thinks he's as good as dead. He's got boils all over his body. And he does what you don't expect to read in that first chapter. He does all this mourning and sorrow, and he falls down and worships his God. His face is toward God. He is suffering with God in all of this. That's the wife. How about the friends? Like your friends... There's some good to them and some not. Here's the positive. They come to him, right? That's a positive. Sometimes you so don't know what to say to someone in their calamity that you actually avoid them. And and sometimes that hinders and and hurts. It feels isolating in that. So they they come to him. You'll read it when they see him from afar away. They don't even recognize him. They begin to wail and mourn with him. They sit and mourn for seven days in silence here with him. Once again, I think there's lessons here. They don't march in blabbing their mouth. They come and they sit and they just experience and wait with him through this dark night. But eventually, like most of our friends, they start to blab. Their logic and reasoning speak basically of a contract God. God blesses the good. God curses the wicked. Now, let me just tell you, if we didn't have chapters 1 and 2, I think the heroes of the story might be Job's friends. Here's why. There's actually a ton of really good theology in there. They actually back it up with some things that sound true and just. So they come in, and they, and they, are, they are talking to Job about some things. Um, uh, and again, they, they see it very black and white, very contract, right? If, if you're doing good, God will bless you. If you're doing evil, God will curse you. Do you know that that's biblical, though? Choose this day who you will serve. And, and those, who serve, you know, those who walk in this way will have life. Plant seeds to the Spirit. Walk according to the Spirit, and you'll reap life. Sow seeds to, to the flesh, and, and, you'll, and you'll sow death. So, so we don't just jump on them. And say, well, they're foolish. We get chapters 1 and 2, so, so we get to see the bigger picture. God is just and will treat people fairly. Their logic goes on to infer that therefore Job must have some hidden sin deserving all of this calamity. And when Job comes back and says, I'm innocent, though. You don't get it. There's nothing I've done that deserves this. It sparks in them indignation. It sparks in them, and how prideful. This guy's really clinging to his sin. And now he's arrogantly hiding it as well. People will come to you with advice as well. Sometimes people will come to you claiming a word of knowledge. For those of you new to the scene, this is Christianese for God spoke to me, and thus saith the Lord, and I'm going to tell you this now. You know who did that in the book? You can find it yourself. But Eliphaz, his buddy Eliphaz comes along and essentially has a word of knowledge for Job, thereby increasing the authority with which he is speaking. We know in the end that's wrong. People will 
will say it's God punishing you, so you should repent. Other people from different camps will come and say it's Satan battering you, so you must not have enough faith. That's why you're in this situation. You ever been there receiving information like this? Maybe it's not people. Maybe you're not bold enough to share it with your, your friends. So maybe you're reading books. You'll get books telling you one thing. It must be sin, so you repent. It's, it's that you don't have enough faith. Joni Erickson Tata is a girl who was paralyzed, I think, at the age of 17. And I read her story um, recently. She's had several books out, but she's lived a lifetime in a wheelchair walking with God, suffering with God. Um, And she reports that person after person at church after church would come and want to help her in some way. They would catch her in the parking lot after she spoke. They would grab her in the hallway before she spoke at the church. Wherever she went, she would have Christians come up to her. And her, her report at the end of the day is this. Person after person, she was very gracious. I know they meant well, but I usually felt more beat up after they left than than before they walked up to me. And and she began to brace herself when someone would say, hey, can I talk to you? So many times it called into question her faith. If you just had enough faith, you'd get up out of that chair. And she said, man, my journey is that I pursued all these things before God. And she reminds me of Job. She poured her story out before God. And at the end of the day, what she has done is this. Shall I not receive the good from the Lord and the bad also? Blessed be the name of the Lord. She's a sinner in need of grace like anyone else. But she's an excellent example of just these friends and this advice that will come your way. Job's family is gone. His wife thinks he's as good as dead. His friends feel like enemies. And now he feels abandoned by God. You ever been there? Ever been in that situation? Instinctively, Job casts his lot with God. It's as if he's saying this, if I'm going to suffer, I'm going to suffer with God. So that's what he does. Friends, family, and experts will all fail us at some point. In the end, a lot of that talking is just hot air. God's ways are higher than our ways. He is mysterious. There are revealed things that belong to us And there are secret things that belong only to God. That's very difficult for some of us to get our heads around. But it's the truth. In your suffering, hold fast to your faith. I want to touch on just two important truths that may serve as a kind of shade for a moment for those of you in the blinding heat of suffering or pain or questions that we can glean from the book of Job. Two things theologically that, that, are, that are revealed here. Number one, notice in chapter 2 that, that Satan must ask permission of God. I find it hugely comforting to know that Satan is under God's sovereign rule. I know that theologically because I've gone to school and I've read my Bible before, but it's good to see that again afresh, isn't it? This speaks of Satan's limits and it speaks of the realm of God's sovereignty. That it's really over everything. Once Jesus is on the scene, we see this played out again and again. He, Jesus, is in authority over Satan and demons. Remember the uh, legion that was, that, was in, in, that was possessing a man and they asked permission of Jesus, right? That's just one example. 
the one we serve, the one we love, the one who holds us, is in control. Secondly, we see the idea of a mediator. Turn to Job chapter 9 and look at verse 32. Job wanted to take God to court, but he understood this was impossible. And you, and you hear his wrestling match with this. And in Job 9.32, I believe this is a, a, a divinely, well, of course it's divinely inspired, but it's a divinely inspired thought in, in Job that's a foreshadow. Chapter 9, verse 32, Job saying, He is not a man like me that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. Listen to verse 33. If only there were someone to arbitrate between us, to lay his hand upon us both, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more, then I would speak up without fear of him. But as it is now, but as it is now stands with me, I cannot. Job longed for what was soon to be prophesied. That there would come, uh, in the person of Jesus, a go-between. Write down 1 Timothy 2.5. For there is one God and there is one mediator. There is one peacemaker, arbitrator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. That's what Job longed for in his situation and didn't have. Because the Messiah had not yet come. I want to wrap up our time this morning in the Word, at least, for those of you who are in the fire right now. Just recently, uh, the Boston Marathon reminded us of some things. First of all, that suffering varies by kind and intensity. In one instant, a few days ago, a few things became clear. The pain and suffering of a marathon runner is temporary and fleeting, compared to the loss of life and limb. When I look at a marathon runner at mile you know, 22, I think pain and suffering. They cross the line and we see in an instant a different kind. Here's another thing we saw in an instant. Some goals and pursuits that seemed life or death for months really didn't mean anything in the big picture. Here's another thing. Very few people will remember the names of the first place, the, the, the name of the first place runner that day. What everyone had their eye on the prize to go and be doesn't seem to matter as much. Finally, emergencies make close allies out of complete strangers. There's a term Christians have used for years called the dark night of the soul. It was coined in the 1500s by a guy named John, uh, St. John of the Cross. And it explains a season. It could be a week. It could be months. It could be years where God seems utterly absent. When the faithful feel abandoned or worse, tormented, and God, their Savior, doesn't seem to be coming to the rescue. There's something in marathon runners called hitting the wall. And I've never run a marathon, so I've never experienced it. But people will tell you that somewhere around mile 20, let's say, basically their stored energy is so depleted that they are forced to slow considerably. And what goes on with that is their feet begin to feel like lead. Self-doubt creeps into their mind. Can I even finish this thing? Their, their muscles are all just mashed potatoes. That's hitting the wall. Whether you're in a dark night or a marathon runner hitting the wall, 
To some degree, let me say this to you. Congratulations for making it there. The vast majority of people will never hit a wall because they'll never run 20 miles. They'll never even get there. Some people won't even cling to their faith through, through things long enough to get to a dark night of the soul. Jesus talked about spreading seeds. Remember that? And sometimes the cares of this world did what? Choked out the growth and they withered and died. So if you're in that dark night of the soul, hang on and congratulations. Keep walking. Suffer with God. To answer why to the question of suffering is a huge question. And I've thought about it a lot, not for this sermon, but just in general. I've probably run the gamut of all the answers that Job's friends came up with. I see in Scripture both a direct correlation to sin and downfall and the righteous not getting their due. For just a sneak peek at that, go read Hebrews 11. People who received all this torment in this life and didn't seem to get their due. Suffering is two-sided. God allows suffering to bring out the best in us. Satan wants to use it to bring out the worst in us. You're not possibly going to get all these... um, References down, but, but let me let the application of this morning come through Scripture. I'm going to just read some Scripture, and I want you to, to jot down um, what stands out to you. First Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says this. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. With that in mind, let me just give you a couple of things of what goes on in suffering. Number one is that suffering produces fruit. John 15, Jesus talking, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes it that it may bear more fruit. James 1.3, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Psalm 126, He goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy. Number two is that it glorifies God. We see this in a person who was born blind and they asked him, the problem of evil question. Hey, what's the deal with this guy being born blind? Jesus gave no other answer than to say this. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but the works of God might be displayed in him. That's why. Number three is that it makes us like Jesus. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death. And finally, it refines our lives and keeps us dependent on God. 2 Corinthians 12 says this, Paul writing, So to keep me from becoming conceited, talk about refining your life, this is the thorn in the flesh. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, 
so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I'm going to invite the band up right now. And as they come up, I want to invite us as a church not to be strangers with one another. You may need to let the next song that we sing be giving voice to where you're at right now. It's a song called When the Tears Fall. And if strangers can become allies and people can get past the barricade to come and help someone, should not the body of Christ get over the discomfort and the awkwardness of not knowing how to minister to, but just come and sit with another person who's suffering? As we sing, I'm just going to give you a couple of options. Maybe you need to just move near someone and say, can I just sit next to you? You don't need to even share what's going on. I just need to be with someone right now. Maybe you'd like to come and pray up front here. And you coming up, praying up here, isn't a sign on your back saying, hey, I'm ready to spill my guts to anyone who will come sit next to me. Maybe it's just, hey, I'm up here in need. Would someone come and put their arm around me and pray with me? As we sing this song, I just want to encourage you to be the church. Minister to one another as you see fit. God, thanks for the gift of Job's story being recorded for us. God, I lift up our brothers and sisters in this room that are hurting, that are suffering. God, I pray they would not suffer in silence. I pray they would not suffer apart from you. God, help us to grow and learn how to minister to one another in these times. Thank you, Lord, for a great day of worship, a great day of celebrating and being together. We love you. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen.